Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fabulous episode of your favorite uh, Murder, She Wrote podcast and ours too, the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm your co-host, TJ West. And I'm Bridget Keys. Hello. And we are so happy to have you here for this week's episode. So Bridget, why don't you tell us what it's called and what it's about? Oh, you you always do that to me. And then I feel like I give these like summaries that go on and on and on. Okay, so this week we're talking about Broadway Malady uh, in which... I love that title, by the way. Broadway Malady, yeah. Which I just got just now, literally just got now. (laughs) (laughs) There's a family uh, with a famous mom from the glory days of Hollywood. And now her kids are trying to launch into stardom. Well, her daughter, her son is a producer-director type. And they're going to put on a new show together. It's going to be mom's comeback. It's going to be daughter's launch into stardom. Uh, But, of course, she gets shot, the daughter. And an attempt is also made on mom's life. And intrigue ensues. And it turns out that the son did it all along, of course. And, of course, it was the son all along. Yeah. So one of the things that stood out to me the most, obviously, as the sort of classic Hollywood aficionado, and, you know, that was what my dissertation was on, so it's kind of my, my bailiwick, as it were, um, was, you know, the venerable, yes, Bridget shaking her head because I used the you word bailiwick. You just said bailiwick, and then five seconds later, venerable, I swear to God. Actually, interesting side note, there is a theater called the Bailiwick Theater in Chicago, and I oh, have done well, some work there in the past. That was the first time I ever heard that word was when I was 18 and went to see a show there. I love the word bailiwick. I think it's far underused in our vernacular. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Um, so obviously, given that this episode is all about like faded Hollywood stars, it's striking then that we get you know some of the greats of that period, including the one and only Milton Berle, which is always... I'm always just vaguely surprised that Milton Berle was still alive in the 80s. Like, it just seems like he should have been dead before then. But I'm always just kind of surprised when he shows up. He also shows up in The Nanny, surprisingly enough. Oh, that's perfect, though. I know. He was very old when he died. So he was, like, working. One of those people who was, like, Betty White, just working right up until the end. So it's always nice to see him. It's a bit part. He's, you know. It's a really bit part. I was thinking, like, deliberately they booked him so he only had to do one day. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's literally just sitting in a in a chair in a bar. Yeah. It's pretty simple. With... Easy for him to shoot. Yeah, right. And it's just one of those moments where I'm like, what must it? Uh, what must Angela Lansbury have been thinking? Like that's one of the things that always kind of <laughs> yeah. stands out when I see these episodes that feature old Hollywood stars, or in this case, actually engage with like old Hollywood stardom and the struggles that old Hollywood stars have in later periods. Yeah, and before we get to talking about Rita, um, just another thing about Milton Berle, I think the fun is that the character he plays is an agent. Mm-hmm. But he's an agent for people who never really made it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're just having so much fun with him. Like, he has nowhere to go. He's pretending to see people at this bar like he mm-hmm. knows everybody, but he clearly doesn't know anybody. Um, and his, you know, the guy that he was the agent for really never made it. And so it's mm-hmm. just so much fun, like, because, of course, he's, like, super famous Milton Berle, right? And he's kind of a 
what do you call it? A C-lister or something. Right, exactly. And he's just, I mean, that's the brilliance of, of Burl's performance is that he just manages to own every second of that scene because he is, he has that, you know, that quality of stardom that is really like filmic and particularly like classic Hollywood stardom. Like he just has an effortless command of this, of the scene. And I really just enjoy the very brief, what, like five minutes that we get to spend with him. Yeah. Well, the obvious callback to the glory days of Hollywood is that character Rita Bristol, who is played by Vivian Blaine, who was the original Adelaide in Guys and Dolls, both on Broadway and its film version, and then had a long career in the movies. Um, And at this point, it was transitioning to TV. So she's doing Fantasy Island and The Love Boat and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Um, So like Lansbury, you know, has this decades long career, but teach. You know, she was with 20th Century Fox, so there's, like, a rivalry, I think, maybe, between her and Lansbury. Oh, probably. I mean, because... Because Lansbury was MGM, right? I believe so, yeah. Although she was sometimes loaned out to other people. I think she was MGM, though. But, yeah. So, and, I mean, it's interesting, then, especially in terms of Rita, because the episode opens with her watching her old... An old yes. film which she started in singing, which, of course, I can't help but think is giving us overtones of Sunset Boulevard, because that's obviously what Norma Desmond is always doing. So I can't help but think that people would have been at least conscious of that, especially considering that, yes. you know, Carol Burnett had, would have only recently been doing her spoofs of that. So it's, a, But it's not it's not tragic in the way that Norma Desmond is. It's kind of wistful. It poignant, is. Mm-hmm. Um, she's singing along as she's watching, but she has a little bit of a smile on her face. Right. And then it's shortly after that that her son announces that he's been able to make a go of their, her what is essentially what will be her comeback, you know. So mm-hmm. there's, if there is any sort of sadness in the nostalgia, it's very quickly like, hey, no, you're still going. Mm-hmm. You're going to do right. this new show with your daughter. Yeah, and it's not, you know, there's so many kind of like threads that are running through here. Like there are also threads maybe of Mommy Dearest, but not, again, not as, well, campy for one, but also not as pathological as Mommy Dearest. Oh, I didn't get that at all because it seems to me like they're very... Um, well, that's why I said it's not tragic it, like Mommy y- Dearest. Yeah, I don't... It's not Mommy Dearest at all because she's not a pushy stage mom. She no. just genuinely loves her daughter and wants to support her. No, I just meant it's, it just gave me... It just reminded me. I'm not saying that it's a conscious thing. It's just, yeah. you know, the mother-daughter stardom. Well, it seems more like to me like they're hearkening, you know, the Red Graves or the Barrymores or any of mm, any of these good, like, you know, a, long yeah. storied, you know, famous families. Although Patty's not quite there yet, the daughter. Mm-hmm. But we're led to believe that this is and in fact her brother even gives a speech. Uh this is propelling her into that. She will be the next generation of these Hollywood greats. Well, mm-hmm. Broadway greats anyway. Right. Maybe they're Barrymores, that's what they are. The Barrymores? Yeah, he's the black sheep of the Barrymore family, which I don't know if there is one, but anyway, <laughs> I digress. There's um before we move past Rita's heydays, though, there's one line um, where Jessica has come to visit her and they're chatting, and she says to her, or about her, she says, "I feel as if I've known her for years," uh, which is just one of those like delicious lines that they obviously wrote because they have mm-hmm. known each other for years, right? Mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. it's one of those little bits that they give us as audience members who are kind of in the know about all this mm-hmm. stuff happening behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. I've, you know, one of the things that I've always loved about Murder Show, which I grow to appreciate as I get older, is it's, you know, recycling of classic Hollywood stars. And yes. A, to, to a degree that's very, I mean, obviously a lot of TV shows did that, but it seems like Murder Show really goes out of its way to... They did. It was these. deliberate on the part of um, executive producer and creator Peter Fisher. He he that 
came from him. Lansbury was on board with it. But um, in his memoir, he writes about how they had done that with his previous show, Ellery Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that show wasn't really a success, but they really liked that and that it gave um, people something to tune in for, cause the fun of seeing these old people again. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he said the crux of it was you had to list them in alphabetical order, which Murder, She Wrote does. Mm-hmm. Because uh, and you have to have more than one per episode because otherwise it becomes really obvious who the murderer is. Oh, interesting. Right, like if you have one famous person and then a bunch of like new actors people haven't heard of, mm-hmm. it's like oh, that's probably the killer. Oh, right? okay. So we had this philosophy: we're going to bring back all these people and just like overload episodes with this just embarrassment of mm-hmm. acting riches, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then that way there'll be. It'll be more difficult for people to figure out. And it's also, like, just really fun. And he said Lansbury absolutely, like, loved doing scenes with all of those people again. See, listeners, this is why you tune into the Cabot Cove Gazette, because Bridget brings this kind of rich TV knowledge that I don't have. And since she's writing a book about murder she wrote, she will continue to share her research gems with all of us, I'm sure. I will. Yeah. We love research gems. I mean, I do. I truly think that that kind of stuff really adds to your to our appreciation of the show and what it's doing. Mm-hmm, definitely, yeah. I think there's other elements of this that are having fun too with Lansbury as a star. Um, I'm kind of like going back to what we were talking about a second ago, like the whole idea that when she meets with Milton Berle and he's the agent for the guy who committed the mugging slash shooting, um, who was hired by the brother ultimately. Uh, she asks, oh, what's that thing where you, like, list all of the stuff they've been in, their credits? Like, uh-huh. it's a new word for her, right? Um, which is also just fun in the 21st century because, like, she can't just look it up on IMDb, right? We didn't have IMDb. That's what I was literally going to say, yep. But ultimately, she, like, the fact that she asks for this, and like, as if she, Angela Lands, isn't, you know, because she's Jessica Fletcher, not, but she's also Angela Lansbury, who has, like, a list of credits, like, 10 feet long at this point. Um, that was just really fun, too. Right, and both theater and film. Like, that's the other kind of... I mean, this is a very remarkably textured episode. Maybe not necessarily in terms of its plot, but in terms of just, like, the extra diegetic material. Like, there's just so much self-referentiality going on, given Lansbury's own storied career in film and then in Broadway, or Mm -hmm. coterminously, and then now in television. So it's really just one of those really cleverly thought out episodes that's clearly, it's an episode whose pleasure I think lies more in the sort of celebration of past stardom than it is in actually the murder itself. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a um, what we'd call in fan studies fan service episode, right? Mm-hmm. That it's it's giving us what we want and what we take delight in, and actually the the fun is like this idea of Broadway and that like Lansbury is clue or Fletcher. See, Fletcher is clueless about it because obviously Lansbury isn't. And then um, you know the whole murder plot is you know, of course it was Barry. Mm-hmm. Of course, he set it up because he's jealous of his sister and he hates his mom. And it essentially boils down to that, like, Barry doesn't get enough love in his childhood is mm-hmm. really what it sort of boils down to, which is such a stupid reason to, like, try to kill your mom and your sister. Um, but, yeah. So, and also this episode has Grady, which I can't believe we haven't mentioned yet. I know. I love Grady. So, I mean, speaking of, you know, of the, the murderous son, one of the things that struck me as Jessica's kind of, like, badgering him at the end, because she's clearly, like adopting the mother persona like the badgering hectoring mother as she's trying to get him to like snap and re- and expose and i was wondering 
if maybe there are shades there of her performance in of obviously Manchurian the Manchurian candidate, candidate, which that's what I immediately thought. And I have a feeling that many viewers probably would also have thought that just because that's her most celebrated role outside of like, mm-hmm. you know, Disney or MAME. Like, I think that everyone sort of knows that that's the role that kind of showed to a lot of people that she still had the dramatic chops that she had in like Gaslight. Well, and dramatic in a way that is like, evil and scary and malicious and i think that's unusual for the other roles that she's famous for right oh yeah i mean and it's a brilliant performance like we should definitely do a special episode on the manchurian candidate because it's one of my favorite movies but i you know she's just so intense in that yeah. moment and it's so interesting that it's jessica because that's not usually her method like her method usually is no I thought it was super weird too. It's it's this so so what TJ's talking about is the climax of the episode when she knows that now it's Barry and she confronts him, but she doesn't just confront him. I mean, she is hounding him and the music is swelling and she's like, "But of course you had to and and it's understandable because wasn't it? Wasn't it? Weren't you?" you know, until he finally just like snaps. It's really unusual for Murder she mm-hmm. wrote to have that kind of that kind of way of catching a killer. Mm-hmm. It's very melodramatic. And I mean that not in the sort of like general pejorative way people mean it. I mean, specifically in the classic Hollywood melodrama kind of way where some like, as you say, where the music is swelling, we're supposed to be feeling this outburst of feelings, building outburst of feelings. And she's talking really loud and really fast at Uh him until he just can't and he he can't take it. And he sweeps everything off the fireplace and rage. She's following him around the room like this. Like, they can't see me, but she's like, you know, right behind him on like hovering over him, just hectoring him and Incessantly, which yeah. I mean, is interesting. We've never seen Jessica do anything like this before. Right. And it's especially interesting in terms of why she's doing it, because if, as the the episode seems to suggest, Rita's actually been a good mother, who exactly, I mean, maybe it, she was the kind of heroine that her son thinks he is. I mean, it's kind of ambiguous, right? Like it's, it's setting up this kind of ambiguity in terms of Rita's character in particular that is not really mm-hmm. resolved. Like we don't really know whether Rita treated him in that way. Yeah, and we, I, you know, I guess now that you're saying that, I think we've seen that before, like in It's a Dog's Life, when, you know, some children have wanted to kill their parents. In that episode, they were successful. Um, and they felt like dad needed to, dad was terrible, right? Mm-hmm. Or in Deadly Lady, you know, dad was awful. And yet what we see are the other children who think dad was fine. Mm-hmm. And the glimpses that we get of those people, it's like they seem quite nice. Mm-hmm. Like, what's your what's your beef with your parent here that you needed to murder them? Right. And this one is kind of the same. It's like it really Barry feels like he was abandoned and his mom was an alcoholic and she had a career. And but actually, she seems quite lovely. And they seem to have reconciled now that she's been sober for almost 20 years. Yeah. It's what's Barry's problem is where I'm I'm left with. Yeah. No, I was also curious. Or, or I guess one reading could be that Jessica's just interpreting what his understanding of his mother to be so it doesn't necessarily bear a relationship or one-on-one relationship with how things really were. She's just kind of exploiting his own distorted perception of his mother. I guess that would be the more generous reading of Rita's character. Yeah. Since everything else we get Definitely. as you said like the alcoholism which is a deeply like, you know, touching confession like she's holding that bottle of whatever it is i forget offhand and she's like you know i've had this in the drawer for like the last 17 years you know it's quite moving especially if you know if you are friends with or know anyone who's an alcoholic you know that 17 years is a huge accomplishment like that's a real accomplishment and the fact that she kept the bottle 
because often people don't want any um, potential threats, mm -hmm. right, to sobriety around them. But she kept the bottle as a, the symbolism mm -hmm. of how she was, you know, surmounting her addiction, which is really beautiful. And then so, of course, what the Dick Barry did was uh, when he tried to kill her, he tried to make it look like she was attempting to take her own life by... Uh, we're told that he forced alcohol down her and uh, loaded her with barbiturates or something and then turned the gas to the oven on. So made it look like she's trying to take her own life with pills and liquor and um, even, you know, like poisoning her with gas. It's like it does seem like a bit of overkill, doesn't it? It's really it? awful. It's overkill, like three ways to kill her, but but it just none of them work. She lives, which is great. Um, but but it's also it's like what a horrible, what an absolutely horrible thing to do. And maybe in his mind it was like, well, because she had once been an alcoholic, this will be the least suspicious way to kill her and make it look like suicide. But just what an absolutely horrible thing to do to someone struggling with addiction to force alcohol and drugs on them, right? Like, that is just such a violation. Yeah, and I mean, when it, it begs the question, like, what happens after this episode? Like, does Rita, like... Yeah. Go back? I mean, because, you know, that's an obvious... Well, I mean, she's had the alcohol and the drugs in her system. Now they've been, like, clinically removed and treated because she was rushed to the hospital. But that could totally set back her sobriety. I mean, that's horrifying. We know at the end of the episode that she and Patty do open the play, mm -hmm. Always April. We get a glimpse of them singing together in the big finale. Grady's backstage and he calls Jessica. Um, so I think we're led to believe that all will be well. But, I mean, she's learned that her son is this horrible human being. He's killed one person. He's tried to kill two others. Yeah, it's pretty messed up, really. It is, and yeah. I mean, it's also, as we were talking about when we were doing our pregame for this, it's also, well, I personally found, like, the motive to be probably one of the more convincing ones of this season so far. You like, say I that mean, every episode, Teach. I know, but <laughs> well, not always. They like, just get increasingly little, more believable for you along the along the season, maybe, I guess. Maybe I'm just maybe I'm just buying into the logic of British Room. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like maybe I'm just you know it's it's casting its seductive lore and, and you know allowing me to immerse myself in its universe. Anyway, as I was saying, I do find it though strange. Like he, he forces the out. Like what exactly is the mechanics of this? Like I'm I'm concerned about the logistics of what it takes. I mean, obviously he laces the coffee with a drug to like knock her out right like that's, right but then he then he like pours the like how does he pour i that? guess you could pour it into someone's mouth and sort of coax them to swallow but that seems very, i don't know very intensive. that's i just think i'm not sure how you would actually get enough alcohol in their system to have attempted to kill them with alcohol poisoning i i don't know it's gruesome though whatever he did it's pretty it's pretty gruesome to a body like just physically gruesome i know yeah and yeah yeah so it was horrifying and certainly one of the more low-key grotesque moments. Well, and we should say that Barry is played by Greg Henry, who's in, I think, seven total episodes of Murder, She Wrote. Um, he's always in Murder, She Wrote, and he's always a bad guy. So immediately mm -hmm. when I see him on screen, I'm like, oh, no, uh, don't yeah. be trusting him. <laughs> right. And there's also, like, speaking of illusions, there's also illusions to, like, the producers a little bit, like with the mechanics of Broadway financing. There's such a ripoff of the producer's storyline, right? Mm-hmm. So the um, Cy Parrish, the producer of April, Always April, Patty and Rita's show, has oversold stakes in the show. I think he's so that um, I think he's oversold 150 percent 
I think so. Yeah. Stakes in the show, right? So if the show opens and is a success, people are supposed to be paid dividends, but obviously he wouldn't be able to pay them because he's committed more than, you know, to pay back more than he could possibly pay back. So the show has to be a flop, right? So the obvious thing to do is to sabotage the show. But that's the gimmick of the producers. That's what the producers figure out. It's like if you if you set up a show to be a flop, you could keep all of that investment. Um, and you don't have to pay people their share back. So it actually works out better. Yeah. I mean, is also, is every person involved with the theater named Psy? Like, honestly. Psy? Is that common? Who else is Psy? I don't know. It just seems like a very, you know, New York Broadway producer kind of name. <laughs> yeah. But we're, we're led to believe for much of the episode that, that this um, malfeasance, if you will, I don't know what the better word for it is, is, is probably has something to do with what happened to Patty, the attempt on her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a replacement actor brought in to replace her. And she kind of, she like suspiciously already knows the words to songs, but songs that have already been cut from the show. So she's obviously been preparing for the role for a long time. So it seems like that this all has something to do with it. But of course, it was just the crabby son who didn't get enough love. And I would like to say, Teej, uh, you know, we talk all the time about the number of times that the white rich patriarch is murdered in this show for being an asshole. Mm-hmm. And here we have, um, that's not the case. The murder's a little bit different. There's only one murder and it's incidental and then there's two attempted murders. But the murderer is the white male jerk face mm-hmm. who can't appreciate just like the love of his family, right? So it kind of stays on the same theme. Right, and whose who's anger is driven, One, if I was to take it to maybe the next level, is his anger is at the matriarch. Like, it's the mother that is the object of his hatred. Like, it's, which is all, of course, very deeply melodramatic. Like, it's like... Yeah, like, and Freudian. Hi, yes, high Hollywood melodrama from the 50s. Like, and so it's clearly, like, as you say, critiquing white heteromasculinity and its fragility and its, you know, ever-present fragility, which we have heard so much about. <laughs> and pointing out just how silly it is, because he looks like, he acts like a child. Like, yeah. He's not given a great deal of, but he doesn't read as someone who's particularly mature or as we, as we've pointed out, has really any true justification for his behavior. Mm-hmm. Like nothing that we have seen or been led to believe suggests that Rita's the uncaring monster. She's not Joan Crawford from Mommy Dearest. To... Not at all. That's why I, I bristled when you made that comparison. She, did she bristle seems her like hair really great. Up. And she wants, you know, she, he's involved in her career. Like, he has his own career as a director and producer because of her. Mm-hmm. So, even though he's just, flopped, at I it. just, what is his problem? He's an awful. He is. His problem is that his mother and sister have been successful. And, and, and I think, and the, the most bittersweet of all of it is when. Um, Rita stages her death and that's how Jessica, you know, gets Barry to confess and then Rita comes out and she's like, ha I'm alive. We duped you into confessing. She is such a wonderful mother that now knowing what her son has done, what does she do? She hugs him and mm-hmm. says, oh, Barry. Right? Like she is showing this absolute unconditional love for her monstrous child. Mm-hmm. So what is his problem, you know? Like it couldn't get any lovelier than that that your mom finds out you are this horrible human being who has taken a life and she hugs you with pity and understanding. Yeah. I mean, again, it's just one of those indications that the show really is kind of skeptical of white men's 
victimhood, like in their this elaborate mythos that they've constructed for the last well forever really, but certainly within the like post Reagan slash post Reagan era that you know white men are you know have been subjected to so many defeats that they have to act like assholes because it's self-defense and blah, blah, blah. So it's another one of those implied moments where, like, the show is really kind of striking back in its own subtle way against Reagan's, you know, yeah, uh, fetishizing absolutely. of white male violence, really. Yeah. I mean, because he shoots another guy. Like, it's not just, like, you know, he actually shoots the guy. He who... shoots the guy that he paid, right? This poor chump thinks that he's getting hired to do a job and he's going to make a lot of money just by pretending to hold up Patty or whatever or to shoot her but not kill her and then ultimately he just gets completely wasted mm-hmm. I mean I'm not saying the guy Morley Manny was good right because he obviously agreed to shoot Patty but like he had no idea that he was being set up to be murdered mm-hmm. yeah he's a yeah, he's a deeply tragic figure. It's so, like, you know, and a, you know, he's a secondary, you know, a relatively secondary character, but his backstory, he lives in like a, a slummy apartment, like, you know, and has dreams mm-hmm. and ambitions of doing something, but ends up dead because, you know, he let his dreams get away from him and was manipulated by someone who was smarter than he was. This very wistful episode, when you put it that way, then it's um, about, you know, people having these dreams of, stardom and what happens when they don't pan out Mm -hmm. but actually in Rita's case what happens when they do pan out it's still tragic because Rita says you know she lost all of her friends when she became famous oh yeah that's true and then she made famous friends but then they all dumped her when she stopped being famous so it's like Mm -hmm. it's almost like everyone has these dreams of being a star and um it's actually terrible whether you become one or not it's it's really awful. So the best thing to do is to hole up in a small town in Maine and just write books, clearly. I mean, yeah. I mean, that is kind of the uh, the, the overall thrust, I believe, of Murder, She Wrote. I mean, again, because we see this another vision of New York, although admittedly a less gritty, grimy one than we saw in the, in the pilot, but still nevertheless one that I think highlights the fraught territory, of, as you say, of stardom, of fame, which we saw, you know, with other the other ones in California, but now we get the you know another look at Broadway, another look at the arts where things are not quite as glamorous as they appear. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get that again when we go to London and see the London stage scene, mm-hmm. which is also as tragic and full of murder. Right, of course. But you know what? Um, speaking of Jessica's books, there's a there's a couple of scenes that take place in Cabot Cove at the beginning um, before Grady says, come to New York and come see this play. And then at the end when she's back there and Grady calls her to tell her it's opened and everything's going well. And we get a shot of her at the typewriter and all of her books are lined up next to it um, with their spines facing us so we can see now all the books she's done, um, which is, I think... A plus on the set dressers for that, but we have a new one. So we knew about the corpse dance at midnight and we knew about um, Dirge for a Dead Dachshund from a couple of episodes back, but now we have one called A Faded Rose Beside Her, which is a lovely title and I think very fitting for this episode. Right. Although it's, it does strike me, it's like, is she writing murder mysteries or is she writing like Gothic Victorian? Like, is she writing Gothic <laughs> fiction from the 50s? Like, you know, those old Victoria Holt right. novels with women in diaphanous gowns fleeing from, from looming mansions in the background? Like... <laughs> And these are supposed to be, like, widely appealing to, like, different genders and ages and 
socioeconomic classes too. You're right. A faded rose beside her does sound like some gothic novel. You're yeah, right. I mean, I, like I could literally see the cover, like you know, <laughs> some with someone like with a name like Alistair Trevelyan or something like that. I don't know. So we've talked about some really serious stuff. With time winding down, can we talk about some fun stuff? Of course we can. Like there's a scene where Jessica goes to um, a street. Yes, performer doing three card Monty, which is just fun. And then um, she gets the guy to take her out. He, he takes her for an empanada, and it's the first time she's ever tried an empanada. So oh, we don't have anything like that in Cabin Cove, right. which is just so cute. She's never had an empanada. It's like, honey, you traveled to like I know <laughs> a lot of places, including Los Angeles. I'm not entirely convinced you have not had an empanada at some point in your life. This is this is where the show, I think, um, tries to walk a fine line and sometimes gets it wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Because at different times, we're led to believe she does things and knows things that are seem really improbable because she's worldly and famous and well traveled, mm-hmm. right? And then at other times, we're led to believe she's naive and ignorant of things um, because she's from Cabot Cove. Right, but it's like, but 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 she hasn't even been in Cabot Cove in like so many episodes. Like, when, she really not. A, but it's cute. It's cute mm-hmm. that she lets the guy take her and like tries it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. And then um, we haven't talked about Gregory Sierra, who plays our detective in this episode, well, a sergeant, and his relationship to her, which is antagonistic again. We're back to that not cooperative relationship between the two. But I just love Gregory Sierra so much. He, um, His character in this is Sergeant Moreno, but he, of course, is the first lieutenant in Miami Vice. He's mm-hmm. in multiple episodes of Murder, She Wrote. He's in The Golden Girls. Um, he's obviously best known for um, Bernie Miller. Um, that's probably where most people know him from. But I just, I absolutely love him. I think that he, he has, you know, like a bald spot and a comb over. And like, he's just like not conventionally... Um, attractive and yet somehow his personality uh-huh. even when he plays a curmudgeon and a jerk his his personality is just to me so sparkling I just adore watching him I mean he perfectly fits this role like that was what I was thinking as I was watching like he is the put upon curmudgeonly utterly resistant policeman of mm-hmm. this kind of drama like he just epitomizes that role to an extent that I can't there are very few other people that I can imagine capturing it in just quite the same way yeah, and I love that um, we talked in a previous episode in Capital Offense about the detective um, taking Jessica out to a deli and, like, always mm. talking about his stomach, you know, and he's eating crappy foods and then his stomach is reacting. And this guy's worried about his cholesterol, so he's, like, perpetually mm. munching on carrot sticks and stuff. Really different. And 80s diet culture. Yeah. Uh, what else do we want to talk about with this episode, Tej? I think that's about all I've got, really. This we were very serious this time. We were, but it's a very serious episode. It's as you said, it's kind of tragic and poignant and wistful. Wistful, it's a good word for it. See that uh, yeah. those that overwrought vocabulary of mine comes in handy sometimes. <laughs> we also, I um, I need to go back and check the previous episodes, but um, I clocked that Jessica has now cut bangs. Hmm. And I don't think I remember them in the last episode. I might not have just been paying attention to hair, but I'm loving the bangs. The bangs are working really well. Yeah, these are all good good entries for our Golden Girls. Or don't mind me saying, Murder She Wrote fashion Instagram. <laughs> like that's what we are. We're currently curating or attempting to curate. Well, stay tuned. I would totally with this episode when she confronts Barry. She's wearing this amazing red silk top with this wrap neck. And these mm-hmm. white dots. It's just, I would totally wear this shirt. Like, it's not even, 
I mean, I would dress as Jessica does if I could get away with it. <laughs> Complete my transition into little old lady. That would be, that's the dream. That would be amazing. Yeah. Wait, speaking of that, did you think that um, Vivian Blaine was wearing a wig as Rita? I thought so, yeah. It's this like super puffy old lady helmet head, which is common in the 80s, but it's like so big. And the first thing I couldn't help thinking of was that it looked like the same wig Gillian Anderson wears as Margaret Thatcher in The Crown. Yeah, I could see that. Maybe it was. Maybe it's been reused 40 years ago. <laughs> it's like the same 40-year-old wig they made Gillian Anderson wear. <laughs> I mean, if you were going to capture Margaret Thatcher of the 70s and 80s, what better way to to do it, you know? <laughs> Some crusty old wig. <laughs> From I just love it. I love that old lady fluffy, uh-huh. you know, halo of hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God bless. Oh, okay. Lord. Uh, I think that's all I have. That's all I've got. Yeah. I think that's a good way to go out is with <laughs> a old lady helmet hair of the 80s. <laughs> okay, so uh, for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm Bridget Keys. And I am TJ West. And we'll catch you next time. We sure will. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media, We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.